Privileges or Immunities Clause. The Privileges or Immunities Clause, which protects the privileges and immunities of national citizenship from interference by the states, was patterned after the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4, which protects the privileges and immunities of state citizenship from interference by other states. In the Slaughterhouse Cases, 1873, the Supreme Court concluded that the Constitution recognized two separate types of citizenship, national citizenship and state citizenship and the Court held that the Privileges or Immunities Clause prohibits states from interfering only with privileges and immunities possessed by virtue of national citizenship. The Court concluded that the privileges and immunities of national citizenship included only those rights that owe their existence to the federal government, its national character, its constitution, or its laws. The court recognized few such rights, including access to seaports and navigable waterways, the right to run for federal office, the protection of the federal government while on the high seas or in the jurisdiction of a foreign country, the right to travel to the seat of government, the right to peaceably assemble and petition the government, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, and the right to participate in the government's administration. This decision has not been overruled and has been specifically reaffirmed several times. Largely as a result of the narrowness of the slaughterhouse opinion, this clause subsequently lay dormant for well over a century. In Signs v. Roe, 1999, the court ruled that a component of the right to travel is protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Despite fundamentally differing views concerning the coverage of the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, most notably expressed in the majority and dissenting opinions in the Slaughterhouse Cases, 1873, it has always been common ground that this clause protects the third component of the right to travel. Writing for the majority in the Slaughterhouse Cases, Justice Miller explained that one of the privileges conferred by this clause is that a citizen of the United States can, of his own volition, become a citizen of any state of the Union by a bona fide residence therein, with the same rights as other citizens of that state. Emphasis added Justice Miller actually wrote in the Slaughterhouse Cases that the right to become a citizen of a state, by residing in that state, is conferred by the very article under consideration, emphasis added, rather than by the clause under consideration. In McDonald v. Chicago, 2010, Justice Clarence Thomas, while concurring with the majority in incorporating the Second Amendment against the states, declared that he reached this conclusion through the Privileges or Immunities Clause instead of the Due Process Clause. Randy Barnett has referred to Justice Thomas's concurring opinion as a complete restoration of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. In Timms v. Indiana, 2019, Justice Thomas and Justice Neil Gorsuch, in separate concurring opinions, declared the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment was incorporated against the states through the Privileges or Immunities Clause instead of the Due Process Clause. Due Process Clause. General Aspects. Due Process deals with the administration of justice and thus the Due Process Clause acts as a safeguard from arbitrary denial of life, liberty, or property by the government outside the sanction of law. The Supreme Court has described due process consequently as the protection of the individual against arbitrary action. In 1855, the Supreme Court explained that, to ascertain whether a process is due process, the first step is to examine the Constitution itself, to see whether this process be in conflict with any of its provisions. In Hurtado v. California, 1884, the U.S. Supreme Court said, Due process of law and the refers to that law of the land in each state which derives its authority from the inherent and reserved powers of the state, exerted within the limits of those fundamental principles of liberty and justice which lie at the base of all our civil and political institutions, and the greatest security for which resides in the right of the people to make their own laws, and alter them at their pleasure. The Due Process Clause has been used to strike down legislation. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments for example do not prohibit governmental regulation for the public welfare. Instead, 
they only direct the process by which such regulation occurs. As the court has held before, such due process demands only that the law shall not be unreasonable, arbitrary, or capricious, and that the means selected shall have a real and substantial relation to the object sought to be attained. Despite the foregoing citation the Due Process Clause enables the Supreme Court to exercise its power of judicial review, because the Due Process Clause has been held by the Court applicable to matters of substantive law as well as to matters of procedure. Justice Louis Brandeis observed in his concurrence opinion in Whitney v. California, 1927, that despite arguments to the contrary which had seemed to me persuasive, it is settled that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment applies to matters of substantive law as well as to matters of procedure. Thus all fundamental rights comprised within the term liberty are protected by the federal constitution from invasion by the states. The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment applies only against the states, but it is otherwise textually identical to the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, which applies against the federal government. Both clauses have been interpreted to encompass identical doctrines of procedural due process and substantive due process. Procedural due process is the guarantee of a fair legal process when the government tries to interfere with a person's protected interests in life, liberty, or property, and substantive due process is the guarantee that the fundamental rights of citizens will not be encroached on by government. Furthermore, as observed by Justice John M. Harlan II in his dissenting opinion in Poe v. Ullman, 1961, quoting Hurtado v. California, 1884, the guarantees of due process, though having their roots in Magna Carta as per legem terrae and considered as procedural safeguards against executive usurpation and tyranny, have in this country become bulwarks also against arbitrary legislation. The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment also incorporates most of the provisions in the Bill of Rights, which were originally applied against only the federal government, and applies them against the states. The Due Process Clause applies regardless whether one is a citizen of the United States of America or not. Specific Aspects the Supreme Court of the United States interprets the clauses broadly, concluding that these clauses provide three protections, procedural due process, in civil and criminal proceedings, substantive due process, and as the vehicle for the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. These aspects will be discussed in the sections below. Substantive due process. Beginning with Algier v. Louisiana, 1897, the U.S. Supreme Court interpreted the due process clause as providing substantive protection to private contracts, thus prohibiting a variety of social and economic regulation, this principle was referred to as freedom of contract. A unanimous court held with respect to the noun liberty mentioned in the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. The liberty mentioned in amendment means not only the right of the citizen to be free from the mere physical restraint of his person, as by incarceration, but the term is deemed to embrace the right of the citizen to be free in the enjoyment of all his faculties, to be free to use them in all lawful ways, to live and work where he will, to earn his livelihood by any lawful calling, to pursue any livelihood or avocation, and for that purpose to enter into all contracts which may be proper, necessary, and essential to his carrying out to a successful conclusion the purposes above mentioned. Relying on the principle of freedom of contract the court struck down a law decreeing maximum hours for workers in a bakery in Lochner v. New York, 1905, and struck down a minimum wage law in Adkins v. Children's Hospital, 1923. In Meyer v. Nebraska, 1923, the court stated that the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause, without doubt, denotes not merely freedom from bodily restraint but also the right of the individual to contract, to engage in any of the common occupations of life, to acquire useful knowledge, to marry, establish a home and bring up children, to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience, and generally to enjoy those privileges long recognized at common law as essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. 
However, the court did uphold some economic regulation, such as state prohibition laws, Mugler v. Kansas, 1887, laws declaring maximum hours for mine workers, Holden v. Hardy, 1898, laws declaring maximum hours for female workers, Muller v. Oregon, 1908, and President Woodrow Wilson's intervention in a railroad strike, Wilson v. New, 1917, as well as federal laws regulating narcotics, United States v. Doremus, 1919. The court repudiated, but did not explicitly overrule, the freedom of contract line of cases in West Coast Hotel v. Parrish, 1937. In its decision the court stated, The Constitution does not speak of freedom of contract. It speaks of liberty and prohibits the deprivation of liberty without due process of law. In prohibiting that deprivation, the Constitution does not recognize an absolute and uncontrollable liberty. Liberty in each of its phases has its history and connotation. But the liberty safeguarded is liberty in a social organization which requires the protection of law against the evils which menace the health, safety, morals and welfare of the people. Liberty under the Constitution is thus necessarily subject to the restraints of due process, and regulation which is reasonable in relation to its subject and is adopted in the interests of the community is due process. This essential limitation of liberty in general governs freedom of contract in particular. The Court has interpreted the term liberty in the due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments in Bowling v. Sharp, 1954, broadly. Although the Court has not assumed to define liberty with any great precision, that term is not confined to mere freedom from bodily restraint. Liberty under law extends to the full range of conduct which the individual is free to pursue, and it cannot be restricted except for a proper governmental objective. In Poe v. Ullman, 1961, dissenting Judge John Marshall Harlan II adopted a broad view of the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause. The full scope of the liberty guaranteed by the Due Process Clause cannot be found in or limited by the precise terms of the specific guarantees elsewhere provided in the Constitution. This liberty is not a series of isolated points pricked out in terms of the taking of property, the freedom of speech, press, and religion, the right to keep and bear arms, the freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, and so on. It is a rational continuum which, broadly speaking, includes a freedom from all substantial arbitrary impositions and purposeless restraints, and which also recognizes, what a reasonable and sensitive judgment must, that certain interests require particularly careful scrutiny of the state needs asserted to justify their abridgment. Although the freedom of contract described above has fallen into disfavor, by the 1960s, the court had extended its interpretation of substantive due process to include other rights and freedoms that are not enumerated in the Constitution but that, according to the court, extend or derive from existing rights. For example, the due process clause is also the foundation of a constitutional right to privacy. The court first ruled that privacy was protected by the Constitution in Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, which overturned a Connecticut law criminalizing birth control. While Justice William O. Douglas wrote for the majority that the right to privacy was found in the penumbras of various provisions in the Bill of Rights, Justices Arthur Goldberg and John Marshall Harlan too wrote in concurring opinions that the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause included individual privacy. The above-mentioned broad view of liberty embraced by dissenting Judge John Marshall Harlan II Poe v. Ullman, 1961, was adopted by the Supreme Court in Griswold v. Connecticut. The right to privacy was the basis for Roe v. Wade, 1973, in which the court invalidated a Texas law forbidding abortion except to save the mother's life. Like Goldberg's and Harlan's concurring opinions in Griswold, the majority opinion authored by Justice Harry Blackman located the right to privacy in the Due Process Clause's protection of liberty. The decision disallowed many state and federal abortion restrictions, and it became one of the most controversial in the court's history. 
In Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992, the court decided that the essential holding of Roe v. Wade should be retained and once again reaffirmed. In Lawrence v. Texas, 2003, the court found that a Texas law against same-sex sexual intercourse violated the right to privacy. In Obergefell v. Hodges, 2015, the court ruled that the fundamental right to marriage included same-sex couples being able to marry. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.